Well, happy Advent. It is really good to be with you guys. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, I'm James, one of the pastors on staff here at Faith. And today is week three of our Advent series that we are calling Christmas Classics. Now, all of us have different things that come to mind when we think about Christmas. Some of us, we love decorations. When it comes to Christmas, you've got your lights, you've got your inflatable things in your yard. There are candy canes that line the sidewalk all the way up to your door. Who hears all about decorations? You just love decorations. Some of you, absolutely, yeah. I'm not a decorations guy. If you ask me to hang up lights on my house, that's a Uh, (laughs) no-go. Some of us, we love Christmas baked goods. Yes, you've got cookies, toffee, Amazing breads, Mm, cinnamon rolls, Buckeyes, anyone? Who loves their Christmas baked goods? Yeah, uh uh-huh. And then some of us, we love Christmas movies. You're going to go home. You got Hallmark on repeat. You've watched Christmas Prince twice so far. You know what I'm talking about. Who loves the Christmas movies? Yeah? Most of us, unless you're a mega Grinch, can appreciate a good Christmas movie. And that's why for this series, we are taking different Christmas movies that most of us have at least heard of. And we're taking one of the big ideas that we find in that movie and then talking about some of the ways that the Bible addresses that big idea. Because in some ways, the Christmas movies that we love communicate some great messages But in other ways, the messages that they communicate miss the mark just a little bit. And our hope is that by examining these movies through a biblical lens, we can gain a deeper appreciation of how Jesus offers us better answers to life's biggest questions than these Christmas movies do. And today, we're looking at an absolute classic. We're looking at a movie called It's a Wonderful Life. This is one of my all-time favorite Christmas movies. But before we start talking about this, let's pray together. Lord, thanks for a time to gather. Thanks for a church community that we care about and that cares about us. We pray that this Christmas season, we can set an example of caring and serving to our community. Today, we want to lift up uh, the family of Shirley Fletmeyer as she passed away this week. We ask that you give them comfort and peace. We pray for Angel Tree coming up this next weekend as we deliver gifts. Help us be a blessing to families. Help them find your love through this. And Lord, we pray that today your word can speak to us, the words of your scriptures may. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, it's a wonderful life. Who loves it? Yeah? Who who hates it? Who's like, I hate that movie. It's stupid. And a couple of you out there, who's never seen it? Who's never seen it? All right. Uh, Hopefully, you get a a good appreciation of it today. But if you haven't seen it, uh, you're going to need to get an entire afternoon set aside because it's literally like five hours long. But some of you are like, no, okay, it's four hours and 53 minutes. Uh, I love this movie. And my family, when it comes to be Christmas time, we usually watch this movie together. And there's something you got to know about my family. We're a bunch of criers, like turn on the TV and a commercial comes on and we're all weeping together. So uh, when my wife and I were first dating, she had never seen It's a Wonderful Life. And she came over to my folks' house around the Christmas season and we were like, you got to watch it. We're going to all watch this together. So sure enough, we're sitting around the TV watching It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, 
all the brides are ugly crying together. And Meredith is just thinking like, what am I getting myself into? I mean, this is a good movie, but come on, people. So um, if you are like my wife was, having never seen It's a Wonderful Life, I'm just going to give you a real quick 10,000 feet synopsis of the movie. So in the movie, there's a guy, his name is George Bailey. And George always had huge dreams. He wanted to travel the world. He wanted to do something big and audacious like design skyscrapers. But the way that his life unfolds, it consistently keeps him from pursuing those dreams. George Bailey, he wanted to travel the world, but every time he had his bags packed and some money saved, something would happen that would keep him in his hometown helping out the family and the family business. And George Bailey, he wanted to have a cool job, but every time it looked like this might happen, something else would come up that would tie him to his home and force him to stay home and do the mundane rather than pursue his dreams. And the key part of the movie is that George Bailey often makes his decisions out of a sense of duty. For example, he stays home to run the family business, not necessarily because he wants to, but because he feels like it is the right thing for him to do. We see in the movie George Bailey consistently sacrificing his dreams in order to support the people and the places that he loved. Now the problem is, over time, George finds himself starting to regret his choices and he becomes dissatisfied that his life never turns out the way that he had dreamed it would. And in the movie, this sense of dissatisfaction, it culminates when he finds himself at the precipice of financial ruin. His family business, which was like a family-run bank and loan, somehow it misplaced a large sum of money, $8,000 to be precise which back in the, those days was a large sum of money. Uh, but right on the eve, so this misplacing happened right on the eve of a bank inspection. So George, he's like, where's this money? The inspection's coming. And he is faced with the reality that his family business was on the verge of destruction. So he has a bit of an emotional meltdown. He goes home, he yells at his kids and his wife, and then after blowing things up at home, he heads to the bar and has a few too many drinks, and he contemplates if the world would be a better place if he had just never been born. Now, through a series of events, uh, George finds himself face-to-face with Clarence, a man claiming to be his guardian angel, who decides that letting George see what the world would be like without him might actually help him see how good his life really is. Check out this short clip of that happening.
you might guess, the rest of the movie from this point on is the angel Clarence showing George what life would look like in his small town if, in fact, he had never been born. And I think one of the things that makes this movie such a beloved classic is that to some extent, many of us can relate to how George Bailey felt. It is easy to feel like life is not turning out the way that we had hoped. Maybe it's a professional thing and you always thought that by the time you reach this age, you would be more financially secure or have a a better job. Or maybe it's a family thing. You always thought that you would have been married or that your marriage would look different or that your kids would be doing better. Or maybe like George Bailey, you look at your life and all of the hours that you've worked and all of the things that you've done and what do you have to show for it? Most of us, we can look at our lives and maybe feel some level of discontentedness because our lives just have not turned out the way that we would have wanted. And in a lot of ways, Christmas exacerbates this. Here's a question for you. How many of you have dreaded going to a family event because you knew that you were going to have to recap over and over and over and over again to every single cousin, aunt, uncle, grandma, and grandpa how your job hunt is going or how the family drama with your kids is resolving or maybe how your illness is working out? And just think about all of the movies and TV shows this time of year that remind us of all that our lives are not during this season. Christmas, it can amplify our feelings that our life is just not turning out the way that we had hoped. So here's the question we're asking today. What do we do when we look at our lives and things don't look the way that we hoped they would have? Now, we're going to talk a little bit about how It's a Wonderful Life tries to answer this. But more importantly, we're going to look at a story from the Bible where the main character's life was not turning out the way he had hoped it would. You see, back around 1000 BC, and if you want to read this for yourself, this is 1 Samuel 19 through 24. Back around 1000 BC, there was this guy named David. And David had been living on a trajectory that set him up to become the next king of Israel. He was a mighty warrior who had led Israel in all sorts of major victories. And not only that, but God had sent his main prophet, Samuel. And Samuel had come to David in secret and told him that God had anointed him to be the next king. Things were looking up for David. He was well-loved by his soldiers. He had influence. The ladies liked him. And he was just waiting for the current king of Israel, Saul, to either die or pass the throne on. David saw a throne in his future. But Saul, the existing king, he didn't really see things the same way that David did. And even though David had always been loyal to Saul and was committed to waiting for Saul to pass the throne on, Saul felt threatened by David's meteoric rise. So in a turn of events for David, Saul hatched a secret plan to have David killed. But David, having friends in high places, was warned, and he ended up fleeing out of a window and leaving the city and running for his life. David, he ends up running into the wilderness where he and a few hundred soldiers who were loyal to him spend what's most likely several years running from mountain to mountain and cave to cave trying to hide and evade King Saul's army. Just think about this. You've got David, 
esteemed leader of the army, confidant of the king, living in the capital city with his wife in a nice house. He's comfortable. He's revered. He's preparing to be the next king. He goes from having everything he could ever want to fleeing out a window, taking nothing with him, and sleeping in the mountains and caves of the wilderness, not for days, not for weeks, but for what was most likely years of his life while Saul actively sought to find and kill him. Things were not turning out the way that David had hoped. In fact, David and George Bailey have a little bit in common. Granted, uh, George isn't like relieving himself in caves and traveling with a band of hardened soldiers in the wilderness, but they both had tried to live the right way only to see their lives crumble before them. In It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey, he consistently sacrificed his dreams to do what he thought was the right thing. He stayed in his hometown. He ran the family business. He gave up things to make ends meet for his family. And for David, instead of using his leverage to try and overthrow King Saul, he supported Saul. He offered his services to Saul. He waited for the throne to come to him in a way that would please God. And after trying to do what was right, they both found their lives crumbling before them. So we've got our two characters. We've got David and we've got George Bailey. And both of them find themselves in a spot where life just is not turning out the way that they had hoped or wanted. And we can actually learn a lot from comparing how each of them resolve the tension of watching their lives fall apart. So here's what happens with George Bailey in the movie. We see that character Clarence, who's supposedly uh, George's guardian angel, who's trying to move up the guardian angel ranks and earn his wings, which, by the way, uh, is not a biblical idea. The Bible does not teach that every person has a guardian angel who's trying to uh, gain a higher angelic rank by helping you. So please don't base your theology of angels based on It's a Wonderful Life. But anyways, Clarence, this guardian angel, he gives George Bailey the opportunity to see how his hometown would have turned out if he had never been born. And what we see is that George's brother died in a sledding accident because George wasn't there to save him. And his wife ends up spending her life alone and miserable. And because George wasn't around to keep his family bank and loan running, it goes bankrupt during the Depression. And the small town of Bedford Falls falls under the grip of the wealthy tyrant, Mr. Potter, who turns it into an awful place to live. And because George was never born, his kids are never born either. And by seeing all of the good that his life has actually contributed to, George is overwhelmed with how much he truly does have to live for. And he is left begging to get his old life back. And he realizes, hey, even though things didn't turn out the way I had hoped, his wife and his kids and the life they have made are worth just as much, if not more, than if he had been able to pursue the dreams he always wished he had could pursue. It's a heartwarming story. You watch it and you're like, oh my gosh, I feel so warmed inside. (laughs) I don't know what that means. (laughs) You're like, James, are you you drinking while watching that movie? Uh, (laughs) I do love this movie, especially... uh, (laughs) Yeah, we're going to recover from here. 
I think the best thing that this movie does is it elevates the importance that living our normal lives can have. I mean, this movie shows us that those everyday obligations and mundane tasks that come with being a parent or a good spouse or a good employee, they really do make a difference in the world. And our lives may not look like what we dreamed them to be, but they can still have value. But there's still one huge problem with the way that Clarence helps George Bailey resolve his despair. And that is, in all reality, George is having a spiritual crisis. He's looking at life and he's saying, what's the point? I had all of these dreams that I never pursued. And the reason I never pursued them was to run my family business and to take care of my wife and kids. And now that my business is going to be ruined and I've brought shame to my family, what is the point? Why am I even here? George's problem is that he had had invested his identity into things that are extremely fragile. At first, it was his dreams of travel and having a cool job. But life didn't work out for him in that way. So then came keeping the family business running and supporting his family. And from his perspective, it looked like those things were falling apart too. And when all of the things that had been the foundation of his identity fell apart, he fell apart too. George's problem was that he did not have something eternal and unbreakable as the foundation for who he was. And honestly, that's the problem with this movie. The guardian angel, Clarence, he doesn't try to help George find his identity in something unbreakable. Instead, he simply tries to retether George's identity to his family and his relationships that are in his town. And while that is a great thing to have, and it is important to realize the relationships you have matter and the impact that you have, unless there is something bigger and eternal and unbreakable that is the foundation for all that you build your life on, you can easily find yourself back in a position of despair because your life isn't turning out like you want it to. Because while it's great to see the positive impact that you have, uh, there's always time to muff things up again. And as important as relationships are, sometimes they fall apart. People die. We ruin marriages. Friends move away. Relationships drift. There has to be something bigger and better that our identity is based upon to help us when life doesn't turn out the way we want it to. It's a Wonderful Life is a great story, but ultimately, it doesn't give us a good framework for answering the question, of what do we do when life doesn't turn out the way we hope. And that's why we've got to turn and look at how David tries to deal with things because he offers us a slightly better answer. So let's check out, this is Psalm 63. What's interesting about this Psalm is that it was written by David during this time period where he was in the wilderness of Judah running for his life. His life is falling apart. He's living in the wilderness. He's there for literally years of running and hiding. And this is what David writes, Psalm 63. He says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary, and behold, your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you 
as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the riches of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They'll be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. This is an amazing psalm, especially when you think about the context. And the first thing that I want you to notice here, and something that stands in stark contrast to It's a Wonderful Life, is that David makes a point to seek God first and foremost. Check out again what David writes. He says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I love the imagery here. Nothing is going the way David wants it to. And what does he say? He says, I thirst for you, God, like dry and parched land where there is no water. When I was in college, my friends and I hiked part of the Appalachian Trail. And the first day of our hike was 13 miles up to the Appalachian Trail. And we had gone in March, which in our minds, we were like, hey, it's going to be 50, 60 degrees. It's going to be amazing. We got down there to Tennessee in March. It was 85 degrees. We were like, oh my gosh. We're slugging 40 pounds of gear on our backs up the side of a mountain to get to the Appalachian Trail. And about three quarters of the way up, we had run out of water. And there were no usable water sources on our way up to the trail. I have never been so thirsty in my life. My mouth was dry. I had a headache. I was starting to say angry things to my friends because I was so thirsty. And every time the trail would turn, I was just hoping that we would run into some sort of stream or river that we could refill our water at. All I could think about was how thirsty I was and how I needed some water to satiate that deep thirst. And that feeling of absolutely needing water That's the idea that David is trying to communicate. He's saying, in this time, you, God, are what I absolutely need. You are the thing that I crave and desire, the thing that will get me through this. You are what I need for life. He says, God, I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. Like dry and parched land longs for water. I thirst for you. David's idea is this. There is one thing that truly gives life, that can sustain us during good times and bad times, and that is God. Yes, we need friends. Yes, we need family. Yes, we need community. But there is only one source of life that is not impacted by the ups and downs of our lives. And that is God. God is the true source of life. And when life doesn't go the way we hope, we need to make sure that we are seeking life from the true source. 
This is the idea that George Bailey missed, which is ironic because in the story, it's an angel who's coming to help him out. You would think that an angel would make a big deal of trying to point someone back to God, but alas, like I said, bad angelology in this movie. But, but just like Clarence and George missed this point, we can often miss this point too. You know, life isn't turning out the way we want it, so what do we do? Well, sometimes we self-medicate. We try and make ourselves feel better. We watch too much Netflix. We beg for affirmation from others. Maybe we drink a little bit too much. Or sometimes we try and do everything we can to fix a problem. Because if I can just fix this one part of my marriage, or if I can just get a better job, then my life will feel better. Or maybe we try and justify why we're at where we are. You know, my childhood wasn't that great. Or, you know, if I had a different spouse, or if only I had been given different opportunities, then my life would end up differently. Not all of those are bad things, but the point is this. None of those things are the true source of life. They don't hold up. God is the only source of life that can't be destroyed by the events of your life. So when we find ourselves having a life that's not turning out as we hoped, we need to make sure that we're still seeking life from a source that does not dry up. But how do we seek God when life doesn't turn out the way we want to? Well, there's a lot of ways, but David gives us two examples of this uh, in this psalm. First, he says, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. David's doing two things here. First, he is remembering things about God that amaze him. He says, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. Now, we're not 100% sure what David's talking about here, but clearly he had some amazing experience of God's power and glory that stuck in his memory. So he is reflecting back on that. And then after reflecting on that, he makes this conclusion. He says, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. This is what we are talking about when we talk about worship. David is recalling to his memory things that amaze him that are true about God. And then he is praising God for those things. And don't miss what he says about this process in verse 5. He says, I will be fully satisfied as with the richest foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. This is huge. David is recounting something that Christians have found to be true for centuries upon centuries. And that is that the authentic worship of God can breathe life into our souls, even in times of despair. This is one of those points that we like to dismiss as churchy hogwash. But the testimony of Christians from the foundation of the church through our entire history affirms this truth. That worship, that is the intentional reflection on the beauty of God and the expression of praise that follows, helps satisfy our souls even in the darkest times. 
Here's the point. When life isn't going as David had hoped, he looks to be satisfied in the worship of God. And so can we. But David does one other thing here. He works hard to remind himself that God is trustworthy. Check out what he says starting in verse 6. He says, On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Man, these words are relevant. David says, On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. You have got to know that feeling. You know you need sleep, but instead of sleeping, you lay there, your eyes are open, your mind swirling over whatever things are plaguing you. And David is saying, on my bed, in the watches of the night, in those very times when I can no longer distract myself and hide from my despair and my anxiety, in those times, I remember you. I Think of you. Why? Because you're my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I can sing. I cling to you because your right hand upholds me. This is basically what self-help authors are talking about when they talk about affirmations. Except that instead of encouraging yourself with affirmations about your own identity, David is encouraging himself with affirmations about who God is. He says, I think about you because you are my help. I cling to you because your right hand upholds me. Think of the imagery here. David, in a cave, running for his life, thinking about if he and his men are going to make it through another night without being ambushed by King Saul's special forces. And instead of letting his mind spiral out of control, he says, when I'm on my bed, I constantly think about you. I remind myself that you are my help and that you uphold me. David is forcing himself to remember key truths about God that are helping him through this hard time. I want to say that again. David is forcing himself to remember key truths about God that are helping him through this time. When life isn't turning out like we hope, Instead of letting ourselves spiral out of control, thinking about everything that's gone wrong and all that can still go wrong, we can remind ourselves of important truths about God that help us through what we're going through. Maybe it's that he loves us. Maybe it's that in him we have purpose, even when we can't see it. Maybe it's that there is nothing I can do that he won't forgive. Maybe it's that he can use all things for the good of those who love him, or that he has saved us and given us eternal life. David, he uses truth about God to help recenter his thoughts and fight his anxiety when life isn't turning out the way he had hoped. Finally, David writes, Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They'll go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. 
Leave it to David to ruin a perfectly good psalm with some super violent words, huh? (laughs) But seriously, this is the part of the psalms that we struggle with. The violent things that from time to time show up prominently in what otherwise are incredible poems. Uh, If you're looking for a big word to throw around to all your friends to be impressive, scholars call this type of violent language where the author calls down destruction on his enemies, they call it imprecatory psalms. So next time you're in Bible study, be like, well, I was reading an imprecatory psalm. (laughs) But a lot of times we don't know what to do with these uh, when we read them. But just put yourself in David's position here and think about all that he has said so far. He's hiding in the wilderness from Saul. He's probably like, I miss my bed. I miss my wife. I'm stuck with all these stinky warriors. I'm constantly worrying for my life. And did I mention I really miss my dog? It sounds like David could like write a country song here, you know? And he is just mentally walking through all of this. And the first thing he says is, no matter what, I'm going to seek God. Because God is the only source of life that can't be destroyed. And then he says, I'm going to worship God and be satisfied in him. And then he reminds himself that God is his help who upholds him. And this imprecatory part of the psalm, it is David's honest hopes about what he thinks will happen based on all that he's been reflecting on. He's hiding and running for his life. The prophet Samuel has already told him, hey, you're going to be the next king. In David's mind, if God is trustworthy, If God is going to uphold him and rescue him, of course that means his enemies will be defeated. Here's what you should take away from that. It is okay to think about what you know is true about God and then to hope that something will happen based on those truths. While David's comments aren't really in line with our modern sensibilities, They do make sense. He knows God has anointed him to be king. He knows God is trustworthy. He knows God is powerful and will help him. And then he is hoping that that means it will result in his survival and his enemies losing rather than the other way around. Now, I hope for the most part that you're not going to go home and call down destruction on other people. But the point is, it is okay for you to hope in certain outcomes based on what you know is true about God. Will those outcomes always happen? Absolutely not. But you can reflect on what you know is true about God and pray for what you hope will be true in the world based on that. Church, life doesn't always turn out the way that we hope. But instead of tethering our identity to things that are fragile and temporary, we need to tether it to something that is indestructible, and eternal, which means we need to seek life from its true source. And we can do that by worshiping and by reminding ourselves about what we know to be true about God to help us trust him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this Christmas season. We thank you for the words of David, how raw they are, how relevant they are to so many things that we go through. Lord, if we're in that place where we are looking at our lives and saying, "Ah, it's just not turning out the way I dreamed it would, I pray that you help us remember that we need to seek life from its true source. And that in times of worship and in times of remembering who you are, 
you may breathe life into us through your spirit in such a way that helps us as we process the discontentedness that we sometimes experience. Lord, we pray that during this season we can be a light to your world and that by the way that we deal with our despair, we can show others how good you are. We pray this in your name. Amen.